0: Good morning, Watermark. Today's scripture comes from Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. All right, good morning. Everybody all right? Hey, thank you for that pat on the back. I feel encouraged and ready to go now. Um, yeah, so Thursday I woke up, mowed the lawn, and my face, and now I need a scarf. Anyways, um, okay, there's this breeze on my neck. Um, okay, so, uh, before we go, before we get going here, um, this is week two of talking about prayer. Uh, in Acts chapter two, there's this statement that says, they gathered constantly, and they broke bread, and they listened to the teachings of the apostles, and... They, uh, they, they engage in fellowship, and they spend time in prayer. And so I've been doing last week and this week on, on the idea of prayer and what it is. And um, it's it's been awesome because I got a lot of emails this week about, hey, we've been practicing collect prayers in our house church. And, um, uh-oh, here we go. I don't, I don't know. It happens when I get up to speak. Uh, <clears throat> and that's been really awesome in talking about how they've been connecting with their prayers, and it's been different, and that's good. Um, different is good. Um, but real fast here, before I move on, there's something I wanted to point out here that I'm never going to get another chance to point out because we never really talk about this passage. But um, <clears throat> verse 103 here, it says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Um, so when little Jewish boys were studying, starting up rabbinical studies, Every day they would gather. Um, and before the rabbi in the first century would read the scrolls um, and before, uh, even in ancient times in the temple, before the children would be, would be taught the things of God and read, the Torah was read to them, they would take some honeycomb and they would chew it and they'd, each person would take a bite of the honeycomb so that when the first passages of scripture were read for the day, they could taste the sweetness in their mouth as this, the, the, the scriptures were being read. Um, and that's what this is talking about. Oh, thank you. You're a gentleman and a scholar. Um, and uh, and um, fast forward to the book of Revelation. There's this passage where um, the narrator talks about um, eating the scroll. Like that's what this is referencing. So all of that is incredibly beautiful, even though it has nothing to do with what we're going to be talking about today. I just wanted to give you that. That's free. It's on on the house. The rest of this is going to be very expensive. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, We're going to talk about prayer today. Last week we talked about the collect prayer and we talked about sort of uh, the free flow, sort of flow of consciousness prayer that most people do. Um, If you didn't catch up on that, go back and listen and then today will make a lot more sense because we're building off of that kind of stuff. Um, But... I argued that basically that free form prayer while being the dominant form of prayer in modern evangelicalism has historically not been the default method of prayer. It has been stating attributes of God and drawing your requests from that so as to align ourselves with the things of God, with what God is doing. So the primary purpose of all Christian practice, um, all of it, from, from prayer to communion, uh, even to the ceremonies of, of weddings and funerals, um, to the disciplines, all of it. The primary uh, purpose of Christian discipline is to create what, what the um, really, I like the phrase the way the uh, ancient Christian Celtics put it was, but creating thin places. Um, and here's my illustration of that, sort of taken from last week the thin place, that, that place where, um, sort of, that, where it appears that in our minds, in our hearts, the gap between heaven and earth is especially thin, where we are fully in that moment fully active citizens of our God and King. to so where in that moment, everything is as it should be. We are submitted to our King. We are aligning ourselves with our King. We are proclaiming the future of our King and willing it to come forth. Um, it's when we bring the future into the present. All of these are what we would call thin places. Um, and... It's where we are just God and humanity together sharing the same space. Other thin places, again, baptism, communion, weddings, funerals, pilgrimages, fasting, but especially prayer. Um, this is the goal of prayer. Prayer is primarily about paying attention to God, um, dwelling in the presence of God as we will dwell in the presence of God um, to the best of your conscious ability in this life. Um, and there are really two types of Christian prayer that I'm going to talk about today. There's verbal prayer, and there's what we call meditative uh, or contemplative prayer. Uh, I'm going to start with the meditation and in, in contemplation, and then I'm going to talk about verbal prayer. But to do that, I'm going to talk about, um, how, about meditation as it pertains to the verse we just read. Because meditation, um, it involves reflecting on an image or a phrase or sitting, sitting with... Um, something usually from the scriptures, maybe a piece of poetry or a story, and sitting with it and pondering it. And we have these passages where this is being exercised mainly with the Torah in the Old Testament. Um, you have in the book of Psalm, the, Psalm uh, the psalmist says, oh how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Um, it is not often that we think about, because we read these um, and we tend to gloss right over what he's actually meditating on. He's meditating on the law and the commands of God, which is in our view, a bizarre thing to meditate on. Um, we don't open up Florida statutes and read them and contemplate their meaning. We, we look at them so that we don't end up accidentally in jail, right? Like th- this is the only reason we would live. But that is not what the psalmist is doing. The psalmist also constantly talks about how much he loves the law. Like, who loves laws? Nobody. Like, why would he love the law? But what he's doing is, He's meditating, and the word here, the Hebrew word for meditate um, is this word that that means, it's a Hebrew word that means to gnaw on a bone. Wow, I should mute the microphone when I do that. (laughs) To gnaw on a bone, right? Um, And to gnaw on the bone. Basically, it's, it's a dog returning to this thing. He's got this big, giant bone, and he's eating it. And slowly, over like three or four years, this dog will eat this bone down to nothing. And it will disappear. It's slowly returning and taking in the, um, this bone sl- one little sliver at a time through constant work on this thing. And that is the language that is used when we talk about meditating on God's word. Returning to the same thing, digesting it a little bit at a time until it is fully digested. Um, and it's an interesting thing to do with the, with the laws. Because here's the thing about ancient laws. So let me show you a picture here. Um... This is the uh, the ancient. It's from it's from uh, um, 1792 BC. Around this around this time, this is the ancient code of Hammurabi. It's a stele that has been found that contains. Let me get a little zoomed in part here. That contains the ancient cuneiform of the law of co- law code of Hammurabi. Now, this predates Israel's law code um, by several hundred years, uh, possibly a thousand years or so. And we have um, some fascinating things that that we learn about these ancient law codes and these things that we find. And we have law codes from several civilizations. We have Sumerians, Akkadians, we have um, ancient Mesopotamia, everywhere in the ancient Near East where ancient peoples have lived. We have found these ancient law codes. And law codes in the ancient world were not handled the same way law codes today are handled. Uh, Modern laws are written so that you can know what to do so that you stay out of trouble. Um, And they are enforced in the ancient world, they didn't have these ma- massive, really, prison systems like we do. Sure, they had holding places and, and prisoners and stuff like that, but it wasn't this, it wasn't this well-organized, thought-out thing. Um, and by and large, law enforcement was like this whole other philosophy. The laws of the ancient world were not given to the people to obey, per se. They were given to the people so that they could know the worldview of the king. So the first thing a king is gonna do when they become king is to write a law for a people. This is why the first thing that happens when God makes a covenant with the people at Sinai, he gives them a law so that they may look at this law and study it, meditate upon it, gnaw on the bone of the Torah, um, which means the law, and they would learn what the character of the king is, what the king has in mind for a just society and a just world. Because the law, remember, the word Torah is a word that, that it sort of refers to a finger pointing in a direction. I talk about this all the time. It is, it's that way. That is the way towards what the world God is building looks like. And so you have to meditate upon it because there are some random things. And so sometimes you're going to come across a law that says something like this in Deuteronomy 22. It says, if you come across the bird's nest beside the road... Either in a tree or on the ground, and a mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life. And you read this and you're like, okay, so I have this command here about like I can eat the mother or I can eat the babies, but I can't eat both. And a lot of you right now are mortified at this whole thought. Um, But ponder that for a second, the way these ancient people were taught to live. Like, the only food you have is what you find during the day. So if you find some food, you're going to eat it. And God tells them, you can take the eggs or you can take the mother, but you can't take both. Um, That it may go well with you. Interesting thought. And then later on, you're going to find another thought that goes like this uh, in Exodus 23. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, well, that's incredibly random. What a random thought to have. But in the ancient world, it's not. You can find hundreds of these laws that string together sort of like a string of pearls that you kind of hold up and you say, okay, there is a common theme here that has to do with the mother and her young. It is this respect for life and the process of life, um, that life is sacred and that offspring is important and that there is this cycle that we must respect. And so as you're gnawing upon the law, you're meditating upon the law, you're going to get a picture of what the, the character of God is, what God's desire for the world is. And you're going to understand that God intends for us to live here in creation, in balance and order. Um, and this is a spiritual truth because um, what happens in the physical realm is always rooted in a spiritual position of your heart. And today we are so separated from these ideas of understanding God's character and God's desire for the world through his laws um, that we completely throw them all off and say they, they, they don't mean anything. Uh, and then we are free to use God's earth however we see fit. And we have now been trained to take as much as you can from the earth to benefit yourself. And this is, now be, this is a spiritual problem that is now being reflected in a physical world where our world is being destroyed um, and we have climate change and we have all these things that are happening. And we, and, and we look around and we're like, look, look at these terrible things that are physically happening in the world, but these problems are spiritual, and they start in the heart of humanity. And the Old Testament, thousands of years ago, lays out and says, there is a way in which you will live in God's world. There's a way in which God intends for you to exist, a way that respects creation and life and reproduction. And out of this idea of God will flow how you treat life, your sexual ethics, and all of this will flow from it. Okay? So this is what the psalmist is doing when he talks about meditating upon the law of the Lord and it, it opens up a lot of ideas. You will find these laws that talk about how when a man is um, has, has a cut and there 's some sort of infection and and there's bodily fluids leaking out, he, he can 't be in the community. he has to be outside the tent whenever um, a woman is menstruating, she has to be outside the tent whenever someone is vomiting, they have to go outside outside the camp and the idea is we 're not punishing them they 're not in sin um, they're what 's called. Impure, and they must undergo ritual cleansing of some type so that they can enter back in. And the whole picture of this is not to punish people because being impure is not a sin. God is, never, God is called holy, but God is never called pure in the scriptures, okay? Um, being impure is not the sin. The idea was that in, in the community of God's people, we will reflect a future in which there is no suffering, no manifestations of death, which is manifested by the spilled of, spilling of blood or whatever. And these things will not be manifested in the community of God. And as we do this, we're pondering not the heavy-handedness of God, not how difficult it is. I mean, I was raised being taught, well, the whole point of the laws is to show you how awful and terrible you are. Great, I'm going to read those. Like, that, is, that was not how the ancient people used the laws. That's how we've read them for the last 500 years since the Reformation. But that is not how we were intended to have and possess the laws. And so the idea of meditation, returning to and gnawing upon these teachings of God and teachings of Christ, it's returning to the bone over and over and over again and reading and studying, um... And the entire point of this is that you would sit and be present and ponder the things of God. And so, and so you're going to read a story um, of Christ healing somebody or bringing the children in to teach them or how he picks his disciples, and you're going to come back to it over and over and over again for an extended period of time, and you're going to ponder it. And you're going to close your eyes, and you're going to imagine it all playing out in front of you and putting yourself as a third-party sort of um, observer of this whole thing. What does this mean? What is God trying to tell us through Jesus? What is God revealing to us about the character of God? This is prayer. This is what a part of prayer is. Entering into meditatively and contemplatively part of the story. Reading it over and over and over until something new pops out. Um, Another form of meditative and contemplative prayer it's Lectio Divina, uh, which means divine reading. This is something we practice over here every week at the Youth and Counseling Center. We're reading through the, um, through the books of the Bible, and we're not exegeting. We're reading them, and then we're sitting in silence and contemplating the things that we've just read. This has always been a powerful part of the people of God. Um, and they would do everything they could to read through the entirety of the Scriptures um, as often as they could. Um, and in all of this, you're, you're proceeding sort of to ponder all of these things. Now, um, another way, which is one of my favorites that I learned about years ago, um, and that I think is this incredible, um, sort of exercise in, in philosophical prayer, if you will. It's the, the, it's called apophatic prayer. How many of you have heard of Apophatic? Prayer, some of you. Okay, I got a couple of hands here and there. Most of us grew up in Western evangelicalism, so this is not something that, that is, is usually practiced. But if you look through church history, apophatic prayer is everywhere. Ap- um, apophatic, the word means to proceed by way of negation. Okay? So it's, um, so the best way I think to explain this would be it is, it is learning about and contemplating the nature of God with the understanding. That every definition and every adjective we use to describe God will fail to adequately describe God. Because language in itself is exclusionary. If I say something is red, I'm excluding everything else that it could be. If I say something is round, I'm excluding everything else that it could be. And if I say God is this or that, I'm also saying a lot of things that God is not. And at some point, we have to admit the language that we have is inherited from our, our community, from our society, from our culture. And when we speak of God in these ways, we already have preconceived ideas about what these things mean. So let me give you an example. If we were to say God is great, there's tons of songs that sing about how great is our God and all kinds of stuff. And we sing about how great God is, but you and I know greatness in the world is usually not defined in the same way that we can define God at all. Our definitions of greatness will fail because they are conditioned by our human experience and our cultures and our language and people in this world who are great and important usually exhibit a particular kind of lifestyle that we ourselves want to be. So the greatness... That they are, the reason we call them great is because we want to be like them. And so the apophatic prayer would start off by saying, God is great. And then it would pause. And then it would say, but God is not great. Not in the sense that we understand greatness. Not in any sense that we understand greatness. Because the greatness of God is not measured in houses or cars or wealth or luxury. The greatness of God is something fully and wholly different that I actually can't describe, but I can only sort of ponder and feel the weight of. So no, 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 God is not great. Great is not good enough a word to describe God. This is, this is the practice of apophatic prayer. Say a truth about God, ponder the shortcomings of that truth, and then say the opposite and feel it and sit with that. Another one, if, what if we were to say God is strong Yes, God is strong, he's powerful, he's he's in all of the ways that we think of strength. When we think of God, we can think of those ways, but the problem is when we think of strength, we are not always thinking of the same things that God is exhibiting. Because our strength in this world tends to be a symbol of military might, and there are many Christians, when they talk about God being strong, and they talk about us being strong as a people and as a nation, um... We tend to mix these two definitions together, and there are still Christians who somehow believe that somehow peace can come through military might, but that is not what we are told. We are told peace comes through the cross, and so what we must say is actually that God is, God is not strong in this way. God is strong in a whole different way that God has revealed God's self to be. And so the strength that we find in God is something wholly different. And this is how you practice apophatic prayer. I would encourage you at some point to sit and ponder this. I want you to talk about God being a father and all the shortcomings of earthly fathers. I want you to talk about, um, I want you to go, uh, you know, God is, God is holy. God is, um, God is present. What, is God present in the way that you imagine God to be present? Right down to the idea, and this is, there's always certain ideas that scare people, um, God is male, ponder that. Spend time with these ideas. What are these things saying? What does the cross reveal about all of this? What is Jesus? What is, what is the symbol of, um, here, I'll go there right now with you a little bit at, at the risk of making people upset. Um, wh- what about the symbol of, of, in the ancient world, the man was the strongest symbol in culture, the male body, but what God gives us is a portrait of a man stripped naked And ashamed and broken. And this is how God reveals God's self, not in a symbol of patriarchal strength. And all of this brings out more attributes of God and more of the nature of God than you would have pondered before. Apophatic prayer has always been important. Uh, If you go as far back um, as 451, you can read the Council of Chalcedon and you can read their creed. And they took the Nicene Creed and they. Um, exegeted it and made it bigger and opened it up more because people are taking the creed and they're coming up with other ideas of God that can still fit inside the creed. So, in 451, ecumenical gathering of Chalcedon, they and they come together and they, they exegete a description of God and they do it apophatically instead of directly. And they, so they say they do it in the negative. God is without confusion. I'm talking about a Trinitarian God, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. And so what we're doing when we see these truths of of the without change and without division, without separation, without confusion, all of these without statements were intended to define without actually defining Um, because definition always, when you're talking about Trinitarian theology, defining God always leads to heresy. You can't define God. You can't do it. That's why we are given creeds that are mysterious and use this kind of language. We are intended to embrace the mystery while still maintaining the boundaries. Um, So the without parts are the boundaries. And everything inside the boundaries is the mystery. Um, Without this and without that, we're declaring and defining without actually declaring and defining. And so in apophatic prayer, you're not using any terms really to define God. You're instead defining uh, what God is not and cannot be and so apophatic prayer is very powerful it will cause you god it will cause you to p- contemplate god in ways that you haven't before and this practice is important for the early church as a means of preserving the mystery of god because those who think they've got god figure out uh, figured out actually probably know less about god than they did before god cannot be fully understood and grasped except possibly through the practice of the apophatic okay so um as far as the meditative and contemplative prayers go, these are a few of them that I have found really important and incredibly helpful. I encourage you, try them, practice them, um, and there's plenty, plenty of, of guides out there online and elsewhere that can help you sort of ponder and lead you through these things. Um, next up, I want to talk about verbal prayer, because verbal prayer, specifically um, uh, specifically petitionary prayer, I think petitionary prayer is, um, though it is just a minor aspect of prayer, um, For most American evangelicals, uh, petitionary prayer is what people do the most. Um, And again, this is new. Um, Throughout church history, petitionary prayer has not been the most, the the prayer of the majority. Um, But now, uh, this is sort of what we've become most accustomed to is petitionary prayer, sort of making these requests. And here's the thing. We don't practice a petitionary prayer because God somehow isn't aware of our situation as if God needs us to draw attention to what we're going through. God is not aloof. He's not far away. God is present and understands exactly what you're going through, which is, which is why I get so many questions about what's the point in praying if God knows what I'm going through. If God is, you can't say God is all knowing and then continue to ask God for requests and bring things to God's attention because in them it causes some sort of conscious, unconscious separation thing. Um, but the problem is, the thing is, the reason we practice petitionary prayer is because we are autonomous beings whom God has entered into a relationship with. He has given us some amount of say-so in our little corner of the universe. You have a life and a little kingdom that you have control over, and you have a certain amount of say-so over this over what you do with it, over the relationships that you have, the people that you meet, the people you come into contact with, the way you interact in the world, with God's creation, with with nature, whatever. Um, And God understands in a relationship each side has autonomy. Um, We have desires for the spaces that we inhabit. There are things that we want to see and things that we desire to happen. And the thing is, God cares about those desires. um, Because we are partners with God. We are in a relationship with God, and so naturally God cares about the desires that we have. Um, to think that God is always doing exactly what God wants to do is probably a mistake because God has love. And love demands that we hold space for the desires of those around us. And so God makes himself present and listens and, again, gives you some level of say-so and autonomy over your life. And cares about the picture you have for how you would like your life to go. Um, And God cares about all of this. Um, And the fact that God is not offended by our requests is in itself an act of love. Um, And so we have been given freedom of requests. And it's called relationship. And any genuine relationship requires that both parties are, to some extent, empowered over and against the other. And so God, in, in, in his love and his um, constant pouring out upon us, incredibly offers some level of submission to us. And this is a difficult thing to ponder, that God wants to hear your desires and, and partner with you in bringing the goodness that God has in store for the world in the future into this world now through you and your hands. Um, Gregory Boyd puts it like this uh, Old Testament scholar Gregory Boyd He says But not believed by one person Even if that person is God Always squashes the personhood of others So God ordains things So that we are to some degree Empowered in our relationship with him He ordains things So that we can actually influence the creator Not because he needs us But because he wants us And petitionary prayer in my view Is the principal means of this human to divine influence I agree with him Um, And I will admit, I often do attempt to move God in my direction. I, I regularly will lay out my requests, and I will actually find myself, this is the relationship that I have with God, I will find myself attempting to make theological and intellectual arguments as to why God should do what I want God to do. And I will, I will point to... Um, you did this back here. It gets sort of like a collect prayer. Like, here's some stuff that you did that uh, you could do again. And um, it's not outside your nature. I don't think what I'm asking is too much. And here's what I think would come of this. I think people would react this way and I think this would happen. And so, God, I think, um, as you can clearly see, um, this is what you, you should do. And I just imagine sometimes shaking his head, sometimes like, all right, I'll bite. Let's give this a try. Uh, and you know what? Like, Like, I feel, I feel like, I feel like I know God. I feel like I understand the narrative arc of the story of the scriptures. Um, I feel like um, I understand God's desire for the world and myself. And I also understand and acknowledge that my viewpoint is limited, and that I can only do this with with some level of of decorum and and humility. I understand that. Um, But God is not offended by my requests. God is not uninterested in my desires. God created me with these desires and, 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 and wants them to be guided towards his end. Now, to be honest, petitionary prayer is the type of prayer that, that I use personally less than anything else. Um, I'm mostly interested in aligning myself with what I think God is doing. And so most of my prayers, if I'm petitioning, I'm petitioning that God would change my mind, that God would um, sort of fashion me in this way. But I have no problem with bringing my petitions. And here's the thing. Um, I get a lot of questions whenever I talk about petitionary prayer. I get questions about interceding for other people. Sometimes you'll see a Facebook feed uh, post go through and they're like, hey, um, I need all of you to pray for this thing, this one particular thing. And if we can get three or 4,000 people praying for this thing, then when God logs on, he's going to see it. (laughs) He's going to be like, what's the limit that we have to? 3,000. They're there. We have to do this. There's a contract. And, and we think they're like, yes, let's get everybody. And, and so obviously there, there's some intellectual problems with this idea. However, um, there's, there's, there's two things I would say about this idea because a lot of people don't practice it. They they don't. What's the point in getting other people to pray? God knows. It doesn't I could pray. You could pray. We could all pray together. And I don't Maybe it probably doesn't have any bearing on what happens. I don't think God cares if more people are praying. There's two things I would say about this that I think are very important. Um, uh, thing one. Um, petitionary prayer for others is a natural way of caring for them. It is One of the most natural ways that Christians care for each other, petitionary prayer. By hearing the desires of other people, feeling what they're feeling, mirroring back those feelings, looking at them and saying, if I were in your shoes, I would feel the exact same way. I am with you. I'm with you in this fight, in this battle. I will emotionally join you and feel what you feel. I will turn myself to God in petition, and I will go with you to the throne, and we will collectively request this thing. That is a natural way that we show love to each other. Do not um, make light of that. Um, the second thing I would say is I do believe prayer actually changes the world. I do. Um, I believe that, uh, that it's a natural, that um, the more people praying in one direction, the better. The more people aligning themselves with the future that we, that we believe God is going to bring forth. The more people aligning themselves for, for whatever it is that we're all aligning ourselves for, the better. I think it changes the spiritual lives of us. Therefore, like I argued earlier, um, aligning ourselves collectively in one direction changes our spiritual life. Therefore, it also has the power to change the manifested physical world around us because it changes how we interact with it. Um, I believe that we should be praying collectively with each other in the direction of God's purpose. Um, the more people we have aligning themselves with the future restoration of, of all things and begging that God would manifest now in a single healing event, the better. I think mean, it's good for all of us. Um, if my son is sick with some life-threatening illness, I want all of God's people aligning themselves with me in prayer as a form of solidarity and the struggle, um, as a sign that a child's wor- life is worth pausing for, and turning to God for um, because life is sacred and as, as a way of reaching out for the divine wisdom that maybe in all of this, there will be some deep spiritual seed planted or some deep meaning that we find collectively through this event. And so, yes, if you love me, you will join me in prayer for this particular thing. This is what we do. It is important. Um, I always intercede for people when they ask me to, whether I understand how it works or why it works or not. And I refuse, um, I refuse to to believe that just because I don't understand how something works that it doesn't work. There is a level of intellectual pride that arises when we say, "Ah, I, I see all kinds of holes in that. There's no way that could work. And so I don't do it because you understand how, just because you don't understand how something works doesn't mean that it doesn't work that it doesn't serve a purpose or play a part. Just because you and in your infinite wisdom don't see the whole thing coming together doesn't mean you should refrain from it, all right? Like, that is, there, there is a level of allegiance to Christ and trust that goes with this. Now, there's another thing I want to talk to you about, the thing that I'm just going to call the simple prayer, and I want to set you free to practice this. It takes no practice, it takes, um, it, it takes no studying and no learning, and it's very simple. Simple prayers kind of look like this Help. Uh, thank you. Wow, that's beautiful. Or even Be with me, Father. These simple, informal, moment by moment, I stumbled upon something and it's difficult. And there is this affirmation that God is with me, that I am not alone, that, that at no point of the day, at no moment of my life, am I all alone. That every single thing that I approach, every conversation I have, every difficult thing that happens every moment of every day, Christ is before me. Christ is with me and Christ is behind me. And there is a sense that at any moment you can affirm the presence of God and just a simple verbal prayer of help. This is out of my control. I don't know what to do. Or a simple affirmation that the sunset that you are seeing is a gift that you get to see in the way that you get to see it. And nobody is seeing exactly what you're seeing in the way that you see it. And it is a gift, it is an artwork, a piece of beauty for you personally to receive and to thank God for. Every morning when I wake up, I do my best to have the first words that come out of my mouth be some measure of thankfulness for something. Because who am I to wake up and go about my day not affirming that there is a life that is is possessed by me in an autonomous life that I have been given. And so the first thing I should do is mutter under my breath, thank you. Here we go. Did you know that in the morning when you see birds singing out the window, you, you open your windows in the morning, you just hear them everywhere, and in the morning they're particularly loud. They're singing more than any other time. Do you know why they're doing that? They're doing that because they want all the other birds to know, I survived the night. And they get up on the, up on the branch and they're like, I'm singing my song, I survived the night, I didn't die, I didn't get eaten by a snake, no owl picked me off, I am here. Um, This is their natural response to surviving the night. We wake up, look at our calendar and go, ugh. Like you have been given, not even going to point out that you're holding um, a supercomputer from the future in the palm of your hand. I didn't have internet until I was like 19. Like, And you're breathing at the same time, like you're alive. This is all a gift. And so the simple prayer is an important thing. Um, and there's one more mode of prayer that I want to sort of awaken you to. It's something that I was taught by a professor of mine. Her name was uh, Cherith Fee Nordling. Cherith Fee Nordling. Look up her book sometime. She's brilliant. Her father was a, an author by the name of Gordon Fee. He wrote a lot of books on Trinitarian theology. Brilliant man. And she, I was talking to her about prayer one day. And she had, um, she said, my... My, my favorite way to pray is she sets herself up in front of hold on a second um, uh, here we are remember this uh, Rublev his, his icon of the Trinity this is sort of a remake of it it's not the same thing it's, but it's the same idea um, and so she's, she has one of these hanging in her office and she says I sit in front of it and I think about my day and I know God is one but I call upon an individual depending on what I need. And so sometimes I'm going into a place where um, I really tend to fail at representing God. These people really get to me. Uh, and they are very difficult people. Uh, and they know how to push all the buttons. Like think Thanksgiving dinner, right? And they know how to push all my buttons because they know me really well. Uh, and what I need in that moment is to be the central figure. I need to be Christ, and so I'm going to pray, and I'm going to say, Father, uh, I need the Spirit of Christ today. I need the presence of Christ. I need I need to represent Christ well. I need to wear the body of Christ on me. I need the presence of Christ with me today. And here's why. And she lays it out. And then there's other times where you're entering into a situation, and you need, um, you realize there needs to be some restoration, and some recreation, and some newness of life. There's something broken that needs to be fixed, made whole again, resurrected. And then you're going you're to contemplate the Trinity, and you're going to look at the figure over here, um, the Spirit on the right, um, who is throughout scriptures creating and recreating, who is hovering over the face of chaotic waters and parting the chaos and planting the seed of life so that life can flourish and grow. And so there's some times when I need the Spirit of God. I need the Spirit of God to be present with me, to make me whole, to make this person whole to create new life here because it's just nothing but death. And then there's other times where I need the Father. Um, I need all wisdom and knowledge. I need the words to say because I don't know what to do in this situation. Um, I need to be a leader in this scenario. I need to guide these people through this thing and I'm incapable of doing that so I need the presence of the Father. Speak through me, Father. And it's sort of aligning yourself with the nature of God in the situation that you are entering into and asking, opening up the toolbox and grabbing exactly what you need. And I have found that these prayers stay with me. They remind me of my vocation in, in those situations. Uh, I sometimes find that despite my own abilities, I often have words or responses or ideas that are not normal for me. You ever have a conversation with somebody and they, they bring something to you and you offer this piece of advice that is just like hands down brilliant, and you're hearing yourself talk, and you're like, where is this? This is good, this is good. Or somebody comes up to me later, and, and, and they're like, hey, you know, this happened, and then I remember something you said months ago. You said, you said this, and you're like, I said that? That's pretty good. <laughs> like, where did that come from? Like, the Spirit of God is there. Like, the, the presence of the Father is there speaking through you sometimes, and, and you know this, and you see it. And you don't attribute it to where it's coming from. The place where, like, I don't know where this knowledge and these ideas and this guidance is coming from, but here here it comes. Like, and you lay it out there. Like, these tools are here at your disposal. You don't have to walk around relying upon yourself all the time. Sometimes the last thing I need is to be Tommy. I need to be the presence of, of Jesus. And so I... I refuse to be the presence of Tommy at that moment and I'm going to be the presence of Jesus because Tommy's going to screw this whole thing up but Jesus I think would do a pretty good job here so I'm going to be the presence of Jesus these are all modes of prayer that we have either forgotten over the periods of church history or we just have neglected to see the power of and just reject Um, for those of you who are here today who don't pray maybe maybe You have sort of an intellectual bias against it. You don't understand how it works. Um, You're a skeptic. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're agnostic. um, And and maybe you just have doubts. um, Or because maybe you've been hurt by the church or you feel that you've even been hurt by God. And so you don't pray. I want to speak to you for just a second as I I wrap all of this up. Um, I understand that. If I were in your shoes, I will say this. If I were in your shoes, I would probably feel the same way that you do. If I had been through your experience, if I had had your upbringing, if I had been through what you have been through, I would likely feel the exact same way that you do. And so first off, I want to I affirm your thoughts and where you're at. But I also want to encourage you, begin to pray. Even if, um, begin to talk to God. Even, even if you want to just express anger and disappointment, that's fine. Again, There are entire books in the Bible that are hate letters to God. The book of Lamentations lays out in fine detail all of the ways that God did people wrong. That's what the author is saying. You were wrong when you did this. You were wrong when you did this. And you were wrong when you did this. And and instead of like receiving this letter and be like, oh, no, rip that up and throw that in the fire. We don't want this kind of stuff in the Bible. No, no, we're going to put it in the Bible. We're going to put it there because you're going to feel like that. And you, you should have somebody to relate to. You know what I mean? Like, you're gonna feel like that. That God did you wrong. And God wants to hear that. And that's okay. He's not upset about that. Um, the Bible is full of prayers like that. God isn't offended by them. If he were, we would not have, they would not have found their way into the collected teachings of God's people, into the scriptures. This kind of complaining, this angry prayer, it can be healing in your life. Letting it out to the one person who actually knows how to fix it, who knows where you've been. And this is the thing about the intimacy with, with God. It's the same thing as intimacy with relationship in your life or your spouse or whatever. Um, intimacy, I'm not talking about like Netflix intimacy. I'm talking, I'm talking about like knowing somebody, getting to intimately know somebody. The more you know somebody, the more you, the more you love them. Um. Two racist enemies can sit across from each other and tell their life stories to each other, and chances are by the time they're done, their hatred will have shrunk. Because getting to know somebody makes you hate them less, and God knows you infinitely. So God loves you infinitely. And so pour it out. You want to know love more? Pour out the anger. It's totally fine. It's okay. Pour it into the loving arms of God. Um. If you believe that God is personal, you must believe that God hears what you're saying. And to communicate at all, to communicate anything, is the beginning of relationship. This is how it starts. So I encourage you. Do it. Be blunt and be honest. I think it will change you. I think it will heal you. I think it will make you whole. It's okay. Why don't we take communion now? Our communion servers, you guys can um, gather the elements, the communion elements, and, and spread around the room. Um, as we go to communion, I want you to sort of pick one of these, uh, ponder one of the uh, your meditative prayer upon the laws or, or apophatic or, or whatever, uh, a Trinitarian prayer. Like, I, I want you to ponder these things, and I want you to maybe attempt right now to try one and ponder God in some way. Um, receive something from God before you come to communion, if you could. Like, do something, some little motion to orientate your life. To orient it more towards the things of God. Communion is the perfect place to do this. This itself is a, is a, is a thin place. It is where we all collectively bring our sin or our successes or our failures or our, our bad theology or our good theology or whatever, and we bring it all to the table and we all receive the exact same thing. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you for your healing and for your salvation. It is for you, it is for us communally and individually. So you guys can come forward um, and spend some time in prayer and uh, let's pray, shall we? Father, you are all-knowing. You are ever-present. You know us and you infinitely love us because of this. I pray that we would desire to be more known and loved by you through how we respond. I pray that we would learn to pour ourselves out. Everything that we have, lay it on the table and be honest. I pray that we would embrace the mystery, the unknown. I pray that we would um, embrace the idea that our language is not even enough to even approach the the goodness and the greatness that you are, but that we would probe the depths of of our souls to, to get an adequate picture of you. May we live in this mystery May we reach out to it constantly, and may you slowly reveal yourselves to us through prayer. Make us a praying people. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.